Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, Episode 1, where we're traveling to 1943 and the first winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, William Schumann, for his Secular Cantata Number no. 2, A Free Song. I'm Andrew. And I'm Dave. And we're happy to welcome you today to the first episode exploring the first Pulitzer Prize winner, William Schumann. So, Dave, what are your experiences with Schumann? When when did you first hear about him? Uh, I guess I was kind of geeky because, well, I (laughs) mean, that that goes without saying. (laughs) Uh, I was an undergrad and I was in counterpoint class at the University of Illinois, where we both went. And uh, it was, I think I was a junior, and our instructor at the time, professor, asked if we would bring in a non-Bach fugue. And at the time, uh, William Schumann's Third Symphony was on the same CD as, I think, Copland's Third, or no, it was Roy Harris's Roy Harris. Third. And it was a Bernstein recording, and I just uh, remembered seeing, looking at it, and there was the fugue on it. And there, there it was. So that was the first I'd ever heard of William Schumann. Uh, and that's kind of about as far as I went with him. <laughs> I didn't go much further than that particular fugue, which is a good fugue, I will say. But it re- will also come to play... In this piece that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah absolutely. exactly. So how about you? Uh, my first actually is band. There's oh, a transcription yeah. of Chester from his New England triptych. Of course. And we played that in my undergraduate. And it was the same kind of thing. It was like, well, this is interesting. And then it kind of stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never went anywhere else. He did come up. I took a... American music history class uh, as an undergraduate with W. Francis Macbeth. Yeah. And uh, he knew Schumann, and so it was one of the people that he talked about. And he also talked about the New England triptych. That was really like all I knew about Schumann, mm-hmm. uh, really, until uh, later in grad school when I was taking classes in uh, more depth, in depth of the American music canon. And we talked about him. But really, since then, so that was the 90s into the early 2000s. Since then, there hasn't been much conversation about him. No. And I think for many, People, he's most known just for being an for being an administrator, being right. the, the I don't know are they called directors of Juilliard mm-hmm. or yeah yeah, yeah yeah make it what it is today really exactly exactly really instrumental in that force so not as a composer right uh, that we know of so it's it's been interesting to go back and look at this particular piece uh, because it was totally unknown to both of us and the style is was also a little bit surprising it to was. hear and yeah so what we're going to do with our every episode of our podcast is that we're going to look at the work in question in three ways. So first we'll have telling the story where we'll look at the current trends, uh, the cultural trends around the piece, how it existed in the time that it was composed and um, when it was awarded the Pulitzer. Then we'll look behind the notes and we'll have a conversation about uh, kind of our subjective reactions to the work and what we noticed in the work, what we liked, what we didn't like. And then we'll end with hit or miss where we'll talk about the the (laughs) post-Pulitzer life of all of these compositions. And if we're listening to them today, if they're recorded, if they're part of the conversation, So let's begin today. Telling the story. So who was William Schumann? Well, we talked a little bit about him uh, just a few minutes ago, but uh, born in New York in 1910 and then died in 1992. uh, Most known for, as we said, working at Juilliard, uh, but also had a lot of uh, interactions with very famous people at the time. So Copland, he knew Aaron Copland, he knew Kusevitsky, who everybody had to get their yeah. works performed by Kusevitsky. Knew, uh, Leonard Bernstein knew him. 
was a junior at Harvard at the time and served as Schumann's local guide to <laughs> uh, kind of around Harvard. And uh, so really an erudite kind of guy, an Ivy League guy too. And that mm -hmm. I think is going to be a big factor in, as some authors have said in the Pulitzer Prize for the future, but especially in this case, it, it, he was a safe choice in a lot of ways because he's an established uh, Ivy League upper crust type composer. Mm -hmm. But also interesting, and this will play into when we talk about the piece itself, uh, is World War II going on. Schumann was Jewish as well, mm -hmm. and actually a couple of the first award winners, Aaron Copeland too. And so that makes the reception or the interpretation of the piece even more interesting to yeah, talk we're about. we're dealing with all that happened in World War II with uh, so many Jewish people fleeing, coming over to the United States, fleeing Germany and the experiences, mm -hmm. and then all the musical responses to that. Absolutely. Right, right, exactly. It's also interesting to me that at the time that he composed this piece, he was working at Sarah Lawrence College, but he was right on the cusp of going to Juilliard, and he really transformed Juilliard. And a lot of the things that we think about as musical education today come from what Schumann did there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when he was there, he's the person who helped found the Juilliard String Quartet and get that going as, yeah. a, as a part of Juilliard. Uh, got the dance division, the drama division really going at Juilliard, um, and also helped put it in the place that we think of it today as part of that kind of cornerstone uh, where it sits there in Lincoln Center. Yeah. So that's a real transformation in terms of musical education. Mm -hmm. But I think that's kind of how he's known today. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> his, his compositions aren't really known. No. Uh, when was the last time you went to a symphony concert and heard anything by Schumann yeah. or a, or any of, you know, we're, we both teach at university, we've never heard a piece of his music, uh, chamber pieces or mm -hmm. quartets or anything at all. And there's tons of music. So, so much. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the real question that we want to get in today, thinking about the piece itself, is where it came from. So why did he choose to write this piece? Uh, and then also why the Pulitzer Committee even decided to award a prize in music, and then how they landed on William Schumann. <laughs> uh, so first, I think we can kind of talk about why in the world he decided to write this piece, uh, because it's a very patriotic piece. Mm -hmm. It really sits in the kind of World War II era of writing pieces that would help boost morale. And uh, Schumann evidently really wanted to serve in World War II and couldn't. Right, because? He had a degenerative muscle disease. Yeah. And he got uh, a deferment because of that. And so he kept trying to find other ways that he could serve the war effort mm -hmm. and decided the way he could do it was through his musical expertise. Mm -hmm. Right, and so what better composer or better poet if you're going to write a choral piece and you want to have a very American... Uh, you know, perspective is to use the, the poetry of Walt Whitman, absolutely, uh, who's kind of our national, kind of our Abraham Lincoln of, of poetry. And so he, for this particular piece, took fragments and uh, different excerpts and put things together. It's not one poem, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's ba basically from two poems. Yeah. But he changed some of the words mm -hmm. to fit what he wanted to do. Exactly. So patriotic pieces. What are some other, think of other like patriotic pieces from World War II that really stand out in, that were kind of around the same time. Can you think of any that? Um, Roy Harris had some. Yeah. So I always think of uh, those that generation of, of composers, that kind of Americana. Right. Um, the first generation to really achieve worldwide recognition. But um, Roy Harris, so there's the um, uh, Beat Beat Drums. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. Know that, that, that old uh, <laughs> Which is another Whitman another poem. Another Whitman poem. Mm -hmm. um, 
Oh, I think of Charles E. Ives. Of course. That's what I'm waiting for. <laughs> you're, yeah. waiting, you're prompting me. <laughs> Come on, get around to Charles Ives. Uh, yeah, but his songs and, mm-hmm. and transforming songs that he wrote for World War One, now for World War II, exactly. in a new context, but the same same thing. Yeah, they are there. Mm-hmm. So th- taking that as an idea, I mean, th- this piece is completely like polar opposite to oh, completely. something like Charles Ives or something. It's a different kind of American music. Right. And this is much more formal more contained, restrained, uh, dare say European in some ways, and it's well, choral th- tradition, or I don't know. Well, I also think about uh, being American, right? What, yeah. what music should sound like as uh, American, which is a conversation people were having at this time. Um, this is the same year that he wrote, that Schumann wrote a free song. It was the same year that Copeland premiered Rodeo. Mm-hmm. And so we think about that that Rodeo has come to sound American, no matter the subject, the, the actual sounds that he created sound American now to us through, our, you know, through culturation and the way that they've been used throughout history. But if you listen to a free song, it didn't sound American <laughs> when we first started listening to it. No. It sounded no. very European the way you we're just describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of uh, like I'm trying to think of a one of those European composers who wrote choral music at that time. It was like Vaughn Williams or some sort mm-hmm. of English kind of sounding. Yeah. Uh, did not, and not until the ending or the second part of it because it's in sort of two parts where it gets faster and the rhythm and mm-hmm. that picks sounds, up. yeah, it picks up, but uh, at first not really. So yeah, and just that's kind of the interesting thing behind this. So uh, it was premiered in the, let's see, first performance of the work was the 62nd season of the Boston Symphony with Serge Kusevitsky in 1942-43, uh, Friday afternoon, March 26th at 2.30. Mm-hmm. And what was on that concert? Well, this this started it out, and so part one has two parts, uh, Too Long, America, and then Look Down, Fair Moon, and then part two is Song of the Banner, and then also on the concert, Sibelius Five, which that seems like a pretty good, pretty good yeah. pairing. Uh, a, a composer I've never heard of, Gua- Guanieri, who wrote Abertura Concertante, first performance in Boston conducted by the composer, okay? And then let's end with a Lincoln portrait of Copeland. So pretty surprising. You've got a very American flanked concert. Right, on either end and in between. Non-Americans. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a, a point of contention as to begin to talk about why the Pulitzer Prize even began to award something in music. We talked a little bit about this in our um, preview episode mm-hmm. uh, where we discussed the founding of the Pulitzer Prize in music. But I think we can look specifically about the machinations, right? The politicization mm-hmm. of music here and why Schumann was picked and why this particular piece was picked. Uh, of course, the Pulitzers are awarded from Columbia University, which is uh, home to a lot of the composers that we'll be talking about in the coming weeks. Yeah. So there's a, a clear connection between Columbia and the, com- the composers who get picked for this award. But the man who is really responsible for uh, picking William Schumann is a man named Chalmers Clifton, <laughs> which was a name I had never heard of no. before until we started looking at this. No. you have any uh, history of Chalmers Clifton? Uh, not a lot, uh, although that does, uh, a name like uh, Ch- Chalmers Clifton does sound very Southern, and in fact he was Southern, uh, from Mississippi, and then uh, did was in, went to New York and was an adjunct faculty member at Columbia and was involved in the New York scene. Uh, so kind of became a society person or kind of involved. Involved in the, the, in the, the musical yeah. 
the musical world of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he was the director of the New York, the New York director of the Federal Music Project during the Great Depression. So from uh, 1936 to 1940. So political, of course. Very political. Yeah. And also the people he would have met and the composers he would have been able to support through the, the FMP, the Federal Music Project during that year. That's probably when he met Schumann for the first time mm-hmm. because Schumann was also uh, a part of the Federal Music Project in terms of sending in scores and hoping to get performances. Mm-hmm. So 1943, they've decided to put together this this music prize. And so what they did was they put together a form letter because there wasn't any announcement. No one knew this was coming. They put together a form letter and they sent it out to 11 composers. So I'm going to let me read the names of the composers and I want to see what you think about these. Uh Uh, These are in no order. So Howard Hansen, Leo Sowerby, Walter Piston, John Alden Carpenter, Roger Sessions, Samuel Barber, Arthur Shepard, Edward Burlingame Hill, Randall Thompson, Gail Kubik, and David Diamond. So what does that list make you think of? First, how many of those names are still regularly in rotation in terms of performance? Mm, Well, Samuel Barber. Samuel Barber, very much. He's probably the biggest name on that list. Uh, uh, Well, I I like some of them. Uh, I've always liked David Diamond's music, and I like some of Hanson. What I see is a lot of future Pulitzer Prize exactly. winners. Exactly. A, yeah. a lot of people will be talking about in the coming mm-hmm. episodes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In fact, Howard Hansen, the first name I listed, the reason I, he's first on the list yeah. is because he's the very next Pulitzer Prize winner. And then Leo Sowerby is quite follows after not, that. Yeah. <laughs> not many years later. Yeah. So they send that out to 11 composers, uh, basically saying, we're having this Pulitzer Prize. Uh, we would like for you to put in a piece. Um there's some names that surprisingly they don't send anything to, including people like Henry Cowell. Surprising? <laughs> <laughs> but someone who was very important in the musical world at that time and, and very recognized, Carl Ruggles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? They don't send it to that, no. that side of American music. Those no. more experimental composers, mm-hmm. uh, those who are more avant-garde, those who are more atonal. They, yeah. don't, they don't get the call. No. Um, but then some composers who, who would also, I think, be up the alley of the Pulitzer Prize don't get a call. So William Grant Still doesn't get a call. Mm. Deems Taylor, mm-hmm. who was very mm. well known at the time, mm-hmm. um, doesn't, get a, doesn't get a form letter. Mm. But then they send a, a personal letter to three people. And this is the best part that we found in the research. Is three people get a personal letter saying you should apply. One was, of course, William Schumann, uh, Aaron Copeland, and Roy Harris. Aha. Uh-huh. So what do they all have in common? Very Americana type mm-hmm. pieces and American, you know, the, the sort of nationalism idea here. Yeah, I mean, I can see why people like Cowell and Ruggles uh, that uh, that would never work, no. especially especially in 1943. No, no, it, no, because I think that they were very clear about wanting. Even if you look back, and we talked about this in the first uh, kind of preview episode, <laughs> yeah. uh, but we talked about this idea of composers who, uh, for one reason, or the Pulitzer Prize, that they wanted to award people who had high morals and, mm-hmm. and represented a certain strain of America. And that wouldn't be people <laughs> like Henry, Henry Cowell and Carl Ruggles. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. So it's very clear they're going after a, a view of what American music should be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but nobody knows how they actually chose uh, Schumann. Uh, I have the letter here. This is the jury report. And it's, it's pretty short, and I want your reaction to this. So it's, it's uh, to Dr. Frank Fackenthal from Columbia University. I love these names. Yeah, he was head of the, I think he was head of the Pulitzer Board at the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. So the advisory committee for the Pulitzer Prize recommends that the award for 1942-43 be made to William Schumann, spelled with two N's, by the way, like no. Robert Schumann, <laughs> for his secular cantata number two, A Free Song. 
The decision was unanimous and was arrived at after a careful consideration of composition in the fields of orchestra, chamber music, chorus, opera, and ballet first performed or published during the period from April 1st, 1942 to April 1st, 1943. Mr. Schumann, Schumann, <laughs> Schumann's cantata, recently performed by the Boston Symphony and published by G. Shermer in the vocal score, complies with the requirements oh both of performance and publication as established by the rules governing the award. The committee is honored to have served the Pulitzer Foundation in its significant efforts for the advancement of American arts and letters. Okay, so wait, wait, read that again. Yeah. Complies with? Yes, so uh, Mr. Schumann's cantata, dot, 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 and the vocal score complies with the requirements <laughs> both of performance and publication as established by the rules governing the board. And it's signed, yours very truly, Chalmers Clifton, Quincy Porter, who we're going to oh, come, come back to soon, yeah. uh, Alfred Wallenstein. That was the jury. Yeah, that was the jury. So uh, as a colleague of ours likes to say, that's damning with faint praise. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's, that's like the most lukewarm, milquetoast kind yeah. of recommendation you can make. It's not that this is the best work that we heard. This is the... Nope. This complies with what we expect. Yes, it complies. So, well, welcome to the Pulitzer Prize in music, <laughs> folks. That's, a, that's our first winner here. Complies. Well, uh, the way Schumann found out, because of course this was new, no one knew this was even coming. Uh, he later wrote and he said, I had finished the chorus rehearsal at Sarah Lawrence. I was driving home from Bronxville to Larkmont. Leonard Bernstein and Harry Simon, Henry Simon were coming for dinner, and on the way home I turned on the radio and it said the Pulitzer Prizes were announced today for literature and so on and so forth. And it said, now, for the first time in the history of the Pulitzer Prize, there was an award given for music, and there it was. They announced my name. When I got home, everybody had been calling. It had been in the afternoon papers. Bernstein said, uh, Bernstein knew. Frankie didn't know, as I recall it. My students at Sarah Lawrence were furious with me. They said, you can't tell us you didn't know this. This afternoon, you didn't tell us. Later this evening, I got a telegram from Nicholas Murray Butler misspelling the name of my piece and my name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just can't make this, this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> not good, not good. <laughs> wow. Well, with that background, I think it's time to head and talk a little bit about the, the music and how the music works. Behind the Notes. So let's go behind the notes, uh, where we're going to give our reactions and talk about the music a little bit, as well as the text in this case, since it's a vocal piece. And as we mentioned earlier, it uses text from Drum Taps by Whitman, uh, two poems, Long, Too Long, O Land, and Song of the Banner at Daybreak. So clearly we're setting up a wartime piece. Uh, Whitman's poems came from Civil War, period, and so Schumann's doing the same thing in World War II. So how does he use the, mu the text in this case? You mentioned a little bit about it. Yeah, and the fact that he doesn't take the full poem in either case, and in both cases he changes the words a little bit. So I, I want to read a little bit of so the first movement, the Too Long O Land. Uh, here's the original poem, Long Too Long O Land by Walt Whitman. Long too long, O land, traveling roads all even and peaceful, you learned from joys and prosperity only. But now, on now, to learn from crises of anguish, advancing, grappling with direst fate, and recoiling not. And that's really about as far as he got. Mm -hmm. But listen to the beginning of Whitman again. It's long, too long, O land, traveling roads, all even and peaceful. And this is what Schumann starts with. Long, long, too long, America, 
uh, too long. And then traveling roads all even and peaceful. So he slips in there that little bit of America. And this is what he's going to do mm-hmm. throughout is he's going to make it very personal. So he's going to take Whitman, which is about his ex- Civil War experiences. but he's Already going to, American. Already American, but yeah. he's going to make it even more explicitly by saying instead of uh, titling this movement long, too long, O land, it's long, too long, America. America, yeah. And how do you interpret that? Is it that America took too long to get into World War II? Or, uh, oh, it's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. But what he's... What he was getting at, though, um, I think if you keep looking in the text, I don't think that's quite what he's getting at. I think that this for him is this is 1942, 1943 when he's writing this. Uh, it's a call for America to kind of take up mm-hmm. and go fight the good fight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's more what he's getting at. It's more of a call to America as opposed to yeah, what were you waiting? What, for? what have you been <laughs> waiting for for two years, sitting around waiting while the rest of the world is fighting? Yeah, yeah, well, that makes sense and. Uh, it, the, the text it seems like a very good choice, again, like we've mm-hmm. said, for the period and for what it is, um, the adaptations and things. So what kind of music, then, does he put to the text? The, the main thing to know about this piece and the music of, of it is that it's for amateurs. The, the, the choir, right. the singers are amateurs. The orchestra is definitely not. Absolutely. They could not. It was you know, Boston Symphony playing it. But the uh, premier, the, the singers, were... Harvard Radcliffe singers. Yeah, it was the Harvard Glee Club. Yeah, right? Harvard Glee Club students mm-hmm. singing. So the music is going to be again kind of more. I don't want to say easy because it's not easy, but a little more accessible mm-hmm. and not high rangy and and pretty comfortable for amateur singers. So and a lot of doubling. So yeah. the the vocal line is going to be supported by the orchestra, and so the orchestra going off and doing their their own thing. Um, also notice and. You were talking earlier that the first thing you ever heard from Schumann was fugue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a lot of canonic writing in this piece, yes, uh, which is makes it easier for the singers to to understand because you have one, and then you just are repeating the same line that you've already heard someone sing. So it's also a little bit easier for amateurs to get their voices around. I mm. think. Yeah, that's that's a great point, uh, and to go along with it, to even make it more united, you've got lots of text painting, a which is text painting. Some of it's kind of funny, and we have some examples uh, that we'll get to, but. Uh, right, just start right off the bat here, from the beginning. It starts out with long, 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 <laughs> long, long, <laughs> really long note <laughs> values, and the music is very slow. Chord mm-hmm. note equals sixty, no faster. He says, and just very long, drawn out, loud. America too long. So that's and a, it's all one pitch for it's all one pitch about a minute. Yeah, <laughs> the first like, the first movement six minutes long, and yeah, here you go for most of the big portion of that you just got one note yeah. singing long 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 mm-hmm. well some of that text painting uh is right there with the whole idea of long long maybe yeah. we should hear that opening and he follows that up with even more text painting so let's just talk a little bit about the text painting because yeah. I, it's one of those things that uh, to our ears now, it seems a little bit on the nose, <laughs> a little bit obvious, uh, because immediately after you have this too long, too long, too long, you get to the line, traveling roads, all even and peaceful. And so what does he do? Well, you make a, you sing a scale, just go up in eighth notes. So traveling roads, all even and peaceful. A little bit high there. <laughs> yeah, a little high. Yeah, uh, the traveling roads. And again, it's also in canon and just following everyone's walking down the road together. Right. 
Uh, and so very clear, even and peaceful. Well, it's even and peaceful because it's the same pitch over and over again, same collection yeah. and very simple arrangement to go with it. So that's a very clear example. But my favorite of the text painting, the one that I've been singing to you every time I see you in the hallway this week because <laughs> I just can't get it out of my head, uh, is actually in the second movement where he's talking about the banner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the Star Spangled Banner, right, the flag is, uh, the banner at daybreak is flapping. <laughs> and you have this huge <laughs> section of flapping, starting first with just regular eighth notes, flapping, 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 flapping. <laughs> uh, and then you get a little bit a little bit of this canonic flapping, 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 <laughs> flapping. And this goes on for about 30 seconds of just yeah. back and forth. Maybe we can listen to that. And the, yeah, low on the ground. So the music moves down to go when the flag right. is going low on the ground, the voice, uh, then go high in the air. Let's jump up and sing high in the air. So kind of, yeah, like you say, obvious types of text painting. But right. again, but this is for... Right, and it's it's easily yeah. understandable yeah. by any audiences. And I think that's one of the things that he's going for, right? This yeah. is a accessibility. Accessibility. Uh, this is a very democratic type of piece in that way, oh, if you yeah. think of it that way. Anyone can listen to it and understand it. Anyone can sing it if they get together and practice it so it's it's a mm-hmm. very much a not a piece for the elite no <laughs> it's very much a piece for the people in that way and i think that's probably what he was thinking about when he was writing it which is ironic because schumann was a member of the elite uh, at the time so so the one thing that breaks that uh-huh. is to me one of the mo- most fascinating parts and probably my favorite part of the entire piece is the beginning of part two yes. this massive orchestral fugue mm-hmm. so w- i mentioned earlier in the beginning of the episode how I first heard of Schumann because of the fugue that he wrote in the Third Symphony. And so that's how he starts out this fugue in part two, which unfortunately we don't have a full orchestral score available. This is pretty hard to find. So we just have the the piano score, which was actually, uh, which complied with the requirements right. of the award. <laughs> so it, this is the actual one. It's very competent. It's very competent, <laughs> yes. Uh, so all it says is orchestral fugue, 62 measures. But it is great. It's really fast. Uh, it zips along and has a lot of energy, and it really builds to the choral entrance when they come in and sing, oh, sing a new song, oh, a new song, a free song. And that's where the title really comes in. And really that second movement builds off the energy of that fugue. Mm-hmm. I found it much more engaging oh, than the yeah. first, first it was part. really kind of dull. I to, <laughs> well, well, we're going to get there to hit and miss. But well, <laughs> for me, that first, yeah, first part was a little tedious. Um, but yeah, it really gets going, and the choir gets going and, and riffing on a free mm-hmm. song. So bringing that whole idea of freedom and, uh, f- at the, at, during the war really prominently. Absolutely. So the ending of this piece is really kind of what stuck out to me. Uh, This is where Schumann borrows from Song of the Banner at Daybreak. The Whitman text says, I hear the tramp of armies. I hear the challenging century. I hear the jubilant shouts of millions of men. I hear liberty. And Whitman actually gives it in all caps and exclamation mark. I hear liberty. This is how it was slightly changed when Schumann said this. So again, we hear the jubilant shouts of millions of men. We hear the jubilant shouts of millions of men. We hear mm. liberty, but you also get that same kind of triumphal forceful, right? He yeah. can't, he can't 
show you that it's in all caps with exclamation mark. So <laughs> instead, he puts it in the the music. So at the downbeat, you know, six measures from the end, there's this huge brass downbeat, and then the chorus comes in, very high, singing "We hear liberty," mm-hmm. and you can like hear the torch being raised <laughs> on the Statue of Liberty. I mean, it's the most American thing you could possibly imagine. It is, and it go- and it's also a big D major chord, which is the triumphant key. Right. Think about Hallelujah Chorus or all the, the sort of triumphant musics in D major. Uh, fits very well here. Uh, yeah, maybe we should listen to just the ending of this piece. Hit or miss. All right, so hit or miss, William Schumann. <laughs> well, let's talk first about what people thought at the time. So I've got a, a, a somebody did a thesis on Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, particularly with choral music, and it's she starts out the sentence here. On the musical front, Schumann's work met with middling success. Critic Virgil Thompson lambasted the premier performance writing. All right, here's what he said. The title of Mr. William Schumann's secular cantata, A Free Song, refers, I take it, since the composition is partly fugal in style, not to musical freedom, but to freedom of some other kind, economic, social, religious, amorous, or political, no doubt. The times being what they are, one would probably be safe in betting it was the latter, though of certain evidence I have none. The chorus's effective enunciation of the text being zero in row U. The music's intrinsic interest seemed also to this listener to add up to a not high figure. Ouch. <laughs> it's a little bit salty. That is. That <laughs> is. So not not great. I mean middling success. Uh, it complies with the it rules. It complies, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so even after that, because that was April fourth, nineteen forty three, and then after that he uh, wins the award and it, it's all good. Uh, so this piece is in the canon forever, right? right. We, we've all heard about it. We've all yes. done this. Absolutely not. Absolutely I'd never not. heard of this piece until we started uh, exploring <laughs> no. this podcast. I didn't even... If they, if you had asked me a few months ago who was the first winner of Pulitzer Prize in Music, I might have thought Schumann would have been in contention just because of his stature, but I never would have even come close to this title. No, no, not at all. So thinking about the piece as a whole... Uh, what do you think are its most redeeming? I, I shouldn't say that because that's very negative. What are the most positive aspects of the piece? Well, I think it's very much of its time. Yeah. So it gives us a good portrait of what it meant to be an American, especially American composer in World War II, and how you would be a citizen composer. So what yeah. would it mean to be a composer who wanted to be of use to the, your society and especially to American culture at that time? I think it fits perfectly in that. It gives us a good snapshot of that time. Like the New Deal. I mean, exactly. exactly a, yeah. it, it sounds like a New Deal composition. That's mm-hmm. a, a great kind of connection to make. Yeah. So then why, why has it kind of died, or why has it gone into the mustiness of obscurity? It's a great question. To me, I think it would be the idea that choral and instrumental pieces, choral and orchestral pieces, that there's a lot of choral orchestral music that you'd be competing against. Yeah. And I don't think because it is so much of its time that it has that kind of long lasting influence. So we can talk about another, right? We mentioned earlier Rodeo by Aaron Copeland, mm-hmm. <laughs> a piece that has stood the test of time. Yeah. Uh, and that probably was considered by this group, I'd imagine, since they sent a personal letter to Aaron Copeland. Um, and it has lasted because it has resonances outside of 1943. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that also is kind of a strike against it. So could it be also that the text, I mean, uh, there's many other Walt Whitman pieces that have still lasted and still, you know, it's not the poetry that's particularly dated, I don't think, or it's maybe the fact that patriotism comes and goes and the whole idea of nationalism, you know, is up and down. Well, yeah, absolutely. An overt patriotism in the 1950s and especially in the 60s. Uh, in music would not have been welcome. And no. the whole kind of musical firmament changed after 1945 and in the war. So mm-hmm. the people like Henry Cowell, right, the more avant-garde composers who were ignored by the Pulitzer Prize at this point, um, they were coming more into the fore and people were more interested in what was going on in the avant-garde after that point and not a piece that's overtly patriotic. No, no. I also think from a musical perspective, it, it's a little dull, uh, yeah. at least the, the first part of it is kind of dull and doesn't, nothing really happens, sort of just the, the obvious text painting, not a lot of harmonic interest or, or this sort of doesn't really have much of a goal. The fugue picks things up mm-hmm. and it gets a little more interesting, exciting, but uh, as a piece, I don't think it holds together. It doesn't last that well. It also wasn't recorded for a really long time. Yeah. So the first recording didn't come out until just a few years ago. Which um, is weird to think that. It's very strange that it took 70 years um, for this to come. Act- actually, after even Schumann's centenary, right? 2010 yeah. is when he would have uh, been celebrating his 100th birthday. Right. And even at that point, it was like two years later that it was finally released a commercial recording. Yeah. But in our opening episode, we talked about how winning the Pulitzer Prize is a, a stamp of legitimacy. So you think that, you know, this would have really taken off or they would have had a good recording of it at the time or something after that, but no. no it just disappeared. <laughs> just fizzled out. And I think Schumann also has, and we'll talk about this with Virgil Thompson also, but I think uh, Schumann has a strike against him by becoming an administrator and becoming mm. so important in uh, musical education that that's how people began to see him and think about him. Yeah. Here he is, the president of Juilliard, and he's doing all these amazing, innovative things in terms of education, uh, and we're not going to think about him as a composer as much just because of that's the box that we put him in. Right, right. Yeah, there's. Are there any other, I'm trying to think if there's other. You know, you, you mentioned uh, who was the other person? Oh, Virgil Thompson. Oh, Virgil Thompson. Yeah, as the critic. As a critic at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think because the other people like Copeland. What else did Copeland do? He was a composer. He was a composer. Yeah, that's why it was his job. That was what he did. So yeah, that's a fair point too. So it's it's now become kind of a, a trivia question. I it think is. more than anything else. Kind of what what was the first Pulitzer Prize winner in music? Well. This is it. Yeah, and if people listen to Schumann now, I think they listen to the New England Triptych. I Mm -hmm. think that's the the piece of his that has legs and that people still listen to and is really interesting and uh, connects to Americanism in really fascinating ways. If I was going to teach Schumann in an American music class, that's the one that I would pick. Yeah, yeah. Do you teach him in your uh, post-1945 class? I don't. You don't? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Maybe next time you teach, well, I guess you'd have to do the, the, the pre-1945 class. I think you'll have to teach a free song yeah. next year. <laughs> Stay tuned. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. Uh, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you can also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about William Schumann and a free song. And please be sure to join us in our next episode when we'll be discussing Howard Hansen's Symphony Number no. 4. Until then, keep listening. Keep listening.